Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on writer and film critic, Jeff York. Jeff talks about film criticism, screenwriting, and even has an amazing Steven Spielberg story, so you don't want to miss this one. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast, and today we are chatting with Jeff York. Jeff is a film critic whose blog, The Establishing Shot, is read in more than 26 countries. He is a charter member of the Chicago Indie Critics, which is a nonprofit organization composed of very unique and dedicated film critics with wide-ranging backgrounds and tastes. And you know, Andrew and I have not had the chance to have a film critic on the show yet, so we're excited to talk to Jeff. So Jeff York, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you both. So... I'm curious, and I ask this all the time, the question is probably getting old, but I'm always curious how people got interested in storytelling and filmmaking and the movies, and in your case, uh, you know, screenwriting and, and being a film critic. So how did that love start for you? Was it something that hit you as a kid or a teenager? How did, how did it start? That's a great question. I, I think it was probably a combination of television and movies as a child. Both of my parents worked. And so when I would come home with my twin brother, we were kind of latchkey kids and we would watch television. And I think after watching so many hours, we started to appreciate it uh, for more than just, oh, it's fodder to do until the folks get home and we have dinner and talk in the evenings together. Um, I could always draw and uh always had sort of an artistic application. And I think that helped me um, at that very early age practice sort of a discerning eye. Obviously with drawing, you draw a pencil, I use a pencil and draw something. And then if it isn't right, you erase it, right? I mean, it's kind of this give and take, always trying to make it better. Writing is the same. I think anything that you create is sort of trial and error, give and take. And so for my brother and me, who is also very artistically inclined, watching television and then going to the movies and oh my goodness it's like tv except it's a humongous screen you know uh became not only entertainment but a a watchful way to understand the craft of of it as well the artistry if you will and how it was put together i mean i was very aware early on about accents and costumes and the way things were cut i maybe didn't know exactly how editing works or, you know, sort of what the, the system of how you put a, a scene together was. But I understood that I was being shown information that they wanted me to see. And it was a point of view of the director or the camera even joined it, or sometimes, you know, from a, a character's point of view. So very early on, I became a fan of film. And I've always said, because I've been paid to be a, f a film critic, but I don't make a full living at it. So I've always said I'm a professional fan more than a <laughs> professional movie critic. And I've, I've maintained that sort of uh, moniker for the better part of my life. So I'm curious now that you, you know, were early in your career in your life and you know, you're a fan of film. I'm curious what your first paying gig was in the film world or as a film critic. And what was that moment when you thought to yourself that you could build a career out of this uh, industry? That's another great question. You guys are very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm not only uh, answering your questions, I'm sort of judging your questions too, as a critic would. <laughs> and you, you can give us a critique great. of the show when we're done. We're doing so good. Oh, I love it in real time, like I'm on Twitter, uh, <laughs> live streaming. But uh, no, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, um, my first gig was, um, basically, I was called by the examiner. I don't know if you remember the examiner online. Oh, yeah. They used to yep. 
have all kinds of people who are writing stuff. And they um, had read some horror reviews that I had done on my blog, The Establishing Shot. I decided to start writing about movies after people pushed me. And I'd written some articles for various magazines and periodicals here and there. And I thought, well, this might be something. This is the, the trend of blog and stuff. So I started writing. And I got a call from the examiner. They were looking for a Chicago horror movie critic. Um, oh, they had a couple of people who were writing for them already. And they noticed that I often wrote about horror. And I've always approached horror as sort of this uh, sort of underappreciated and elevated genre. I think there's a lot of morality to it and artistry, and it's not just, you know, blood and guts and, and sort of cheap scares. So they said, would you like to write for us? And I said, sure. So they said, well, we'd like you to write at least once a week. And eventually I started writing uh, regular reviews for them too. So I was doing twice a week and getting paid for that. Now it wasn't a ton of money, but it was a paying gig. And since that time, uh, because of that, those doors being open, I got paid for other magazines and periodicals online. I was uh, the paid film critic for Creative Screenwriting Magazine for three years and uh, have been a contributing artist here and there. And I'm a regular contributor to PipelineArtists.com, which is a uh, an online site about creativity. And my focus is on writing and films and sort of the writing of films and trends and stuff in the business that uh, they give me an opportunity twice a month to write about. And uh, and, and pay as well. So uh, I've always been paid sort of since the examiner in one way, shape or form, just not necessarily, you know, the big bucks that you would get if you were, say, somebody writing for a newspaper or magazine on a regular basis, like the Chicago Tribune or sometimes locally. I know both of those film critics, they're terrific. That's their living. They're great at it. Um, I like to do what I do as a professional fan, but it's nice to make some money on it too. But it's not enough to pay the rent necessarily. Sure. And, and you're from Chicago. I, I remember as a kid growing up, I would just, I could not wait till sneak previews came on. And, uh, you know, with Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, and I, I would watch that religiously. Um, so yeah, it, it, and so being in the Chicago area, I'm, I'm sure you have access to a lot of great theater, a lot of great film, a lot of great independent film. How would you define your approach to film criticism and and maybe what sets you apart from other critics? I mean, do you have a particular angle or a particular way into a, a critique? That's um, uh, that's definitely something I strive to do. I, I like a lot of critics and I read a number of them. Friends of mine are, who are in the same uh, Chicago indie critics or in the other critics group in Chicago the Chicago Film Critics Association and other people. I mean, I grew up on Pauline Kael and Siskel and Eber, just like you. I love sure. seeing previews because they really dove into it. But what I want to do when I uh, approach critiquing a film is sort of get down to its core of what it's really about. I don't want to be one of those critics who just goes, oh, I liked it, thumbs up or thumbs down, which is so funny that Siskel and Eber became known for that because when they right. were on sneak previews and when they've done their – editorials and written material that they've done for their newspapers, it was always much deeper than that, even though, you know, for a 22 minute program, that's a good way to say, hey, if you're going to the movies this weekend, see this one instead of this one. That's I understand. But uh, for me, it's not only getting deeper into movies where I think I, I want to get into sort of really what's going on, what's the story about, as well as if there's a an angle or something that I see in it that maybe isn't quite the usual take on it. I like to go a little bit more uh, sort of a zagging position rather than zigging. And part of that comes from being in the world of advertising, where you always have to sort of find a new way to express something about whatever product you're trying to get the consumer to consider, find the uniqueness of it, a different angle, something that sounds fresh to them. And for me, movies have always been 
that kind of thing, uh, you know, in, in, in if I'm going to talk about them rather than saying, wow, that was one heck of a fun movie. Well, yeah, it's a fun comedy, but what else is going on there? What are some of the themes? I'll give you one quick example that's interesting. I, I read in high school uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman, who, of course, oh, yeah. wrote everything from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride to adapting his own book of Marathon Man, as well as winning an Oscar for All the President's Men. Um, and one of the things he wrote in his book is, there's what the movie is about, sort of the elevator pitch. We used to call it the TV guide blurb, right? You know, the two sentences that kind of tell you what the movie's about in case you want to watch it. You kind of get the basic storytelling idea. But then Goldman and went on to explain that he likes to go a little bit deeper in the movies and what's it kind of really about? Like, what's the theme going through there? And I just started applying that to film. So when I go to see a movie, a lot of times I'll apply that. One of the reasons I just recently really liked Indiana Jones and the um, Dial of Destiny, even though a lot of critics did not like it, is to me it's all about age. A lot of critics just like, oh, he can't do the stunts anymore and it's CGI and it's, you know, green screen and stuntmen and stuff like that. But to me, the movie is about this explorer who's now reached the winter of his years. And it's also about Harrison Ford doing the same thing. And I think to me, it's sort of a morality tale about what is the legacy you've left? What have you accomplished? What have you left behind? Who have you left behind? Um, what regrets do you have? And I think all that goes into the story and gives it a deep deeper quality. It's not by accident that James Mangold directed it, considering he's the guy who also did Logan, a similar kind of assessment of a sort of venerable, lovable uh, hero character who in that movie, uh, like this one in Logan, was um, examined with a much deeper gravitas. So I always think it's interesting to find sort of that other level that Goldman referred to. What is the movie really about? Not just that basic story plot that is going to be on everything from Fandango to the Wikipedia page. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like something me and Jeff talk about all the time when developing our own stuff, you have that popcorn pitch that gets them in their seats, but you need that emotional connection that keeps them in their seats a little bit. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because I mean, you look at any movie and you could find that. I, I know there's many things that if you examine any screenwriting book will tell you, you have to have the, the main character, then you have the dynamic character that sort of pulls him into an adventure, then you have the opponent character. But you also, I think, uh, to your point, Andrew, have this, this other level that it's kind of working at to get to you more in your heart, more in the deeper soul, if you will. I know that sounds pretentious, but so it just doesn't become this sort of time killer. It becomes something that really resonates with you. Um, I'll give you just a quick example. I, uh, one of the TV shows that affected me, even though it's very cinematic of the last couple of years, was Normal People. Of course, a lot of people watch that during lockdown, but that was the BBC, uh, I think it was BBC uh, series that was on Hulu here about the two Irish teenagers. And their kind of fits and starts as they became friends and lovers and the first sort of loves in their lives as, as teenagers heading into college. Well, the sort of Goldman version of that is this is really about the caste system. And can these two people really connect because everything in their environment and their world in Ireland and England and the way uh, the class system works over there is telling them they can't be, you know, it's, it's not just the cliche wrong side of the tracks, but it's like, you aren't really 
in the proper venue if you're dating out of sort of your caste system. That went both ways for the rich girl as well as the poor guy. Uh, And I think that that added resonance to it because there were things working against them that even though they were immature and there was peer pressure and sometimes they got along, sometimes they didn't, there was that sort of great enemy if you will, kind of working against them, which is, you know, the antagonist, right? Uh, that uh, was was sort of keeping them from really being able to fully connect. And, and it made it all the more tragic because sometimes people from different parts of the world can't. But uh, uh, that was one of the things I found compelling about that. Despite the fact that on the surface, it's a romantic drama. It's also about these two people who are sort of victims uh, and at the mercy of a system that's been set up in those uh, parts of uh, Europe, uh, the UK, as it were, a uh, long time before they got involved and still be around there long after they've probably uh, been dead and buried as well. No, yeah, I think, you know, one of the examples I always like to think of is super bad uh, with, you know, the high schoolers that just are trying to get beer and get laid. But you realize, you know, halfway through the film, it's really about their friendship and how they're going to deal with going to separate colleges next year. And it, you know, it turns into a, a different emotional movie. That's um, exactly right. I mean, yeah. both that and Booksmart, I think, are love stories, mm-hmm. uh, but they're love stories about friendship. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not uh, lesbian or homosexual. Not, not that that would be fine. It would be fine if it was. But uh, love stories don't have to be heterosexual male and heterosexual female. And both of those, you're right, the the sort of Goldman version or level of it was uh, a love story and about sort of uh, maturing and having to go beyond what you know and, and are, are used to the normal, the normalcy of your life to expand and grow and become more of a citizen of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And staying on the film critics topic, I'm curious what your process is for analyzing and evaluating a film. Like what factors do you consider when forming your opinion? Because in today's age, there's so much resources around you, whether it be like the four different movie trailers that are going to be released for the movie, <laughs> yes. like leading up to to release or the back, the background drama between actors how much like do you i'm guessing you try to not let that affect your opinion but at some point maybe it's hard to not see it and and not take it into account like how how do you deal with that kind of stuff that's a terrific question too because it's all around us and you can't escape it if you go on twitter for five minutes you'll see things that give away plot points or tell you what deadlines reported about the dynamics of the production or a hundred other things that can affect your opinion on a film that you're supposed to walk in fairly open-minded and uh you know sort of uh, ready to just sort of give into it. Uh, Pauline Kael said that she always looks forward to when the lights go down because despite being a very harsh critic, she was always hopeful, always wishing the best of what she was going to see, even if it was maybe somebody that she wasn't necessarily confident would dazzle her, but she was always hopeful that they would. I don't like trailers much anymore. They give away far too much of it. In fact, I've, I've sort of go out of my way these days, guys, to, to not watch trailers because I think they show too many good lines and bits and heck, I've seen them where they give away two-thirds of the movie. Um, I also don't read any critics before I've seen the movie because I don't want them influencing me or or sort of putting a uh, preconception in my head. Even after I've seen a movie and have my own preconceptions, I don't like to read any until I've written mine and posted mine. Um, and then I read plenty of them and, and get other people's takes and and, and learn from them and, and am inspired by them or, or find contrarian opinions that make it all the more interesting to think about the film in hindsight. Um, I do truly sit down for every genre, every movie that I go in to see with the best of intentions. I'm now one of those guys who says, 
oh, I hate Westerns or, oh, rom-coms suck. I mean, I can say objectively that most rom-coms these days aren't particularly great, but if I'm sitting down to watch a rom-com in the theater, I'm hoping it's going to be a really good one. So I like any kind of good storytelling. To me, a story is a story. I don't have to relate uh, to the time period or the sex of the main character. If there's emotions and thoughts that I can connect to, it doesn't matter if it takes place in 1850 or 1950 or present day. Um, so, you know, I think I go in as open a slate, a clean a slate as I can. I also don't take notes. A lot of my critical brethren do, and there's nothing oh, wrong with that. You don't take any I notes. Do, I take no notes. I don't take, I've never taken out a pen or a pad to write anything or quote a line. I always figure if it's worth memory, I'll probably remember it. And again, I just want to sit there as a fan. I am watching this movie. I'm giving in to you. Impress me. I just sit there and take it all in as a fan without any kind of thing letting anybody in know, including myself, that I'm watching this with a critical eye. So I'm curious, you're also a screenwriter. So what kinds of stories are you drawn to as a writer? What kinds of genres do you write? What kinds of what kinds of stories do you tell? I'm curious about that side of your life. That's um, I think that they sort of both help each other. Um, by seeing so many movies and taking a critical eye on them, it has helped me be a screenwriter. And by being a screenwriter, I can understand how they're getting from point A to point B and the economy of scenes, uh, the clarity uh, of through lines and action. Uh, I, I see when they're putting foreshadowing in or little teases that you think don't mean anything and yet they do. What I think it has helped me on both sides is see things clearer and stronger and also uh, maybe be mindful of cliches. Uh, there's a lot of times I will find in horror movies in particular that the writers seem to think like, well, there's a formula for writing a scary movie and the audience always shows up, which they tend to do. Good, bad, or indifferent. Horror makes money. Usually that first weekend has probably made the budget of most of the horror films that show up in the Cineplex. But for me, um, it's it's got to be smarter than the average horror film. It, it, and I want them to do things that I haven't seen before or sort of surprise me by having the characters act smarter or the villain not be such an obvious thing that anybody would scream running out of the house saying, get out of there instead. The villain has to be smarter too. And for me, what I like about that is it, it doesn't tether me to any genre. I mean, I like thrillers. I like things that have a little bit more of twists to them, sure. But they can be in any story. I think there's always that point, you know, you're supposed to get to the hour mark in a movie or, or story or halfway through where there's some event that happens that kind of changes the dynamic of the story, suddenly goes in this different direction that adds more nuance or flavor or the unexpected. And then until you finish it, uh, you're kind of off guard because you weren't expecting this twist. I like that. I think that works both as a critic watching a movie like, okay, when does this become something that I'm really breathlessly watching? Cause I don't know where it's going exactly. Or as a screenwriter, okay, I've gotten this point now and people have seen hundreds and hundreds of thrillers or horror movies or rom-coms or historical epics or whatever else. I've got to find ways to, Keep that fresh. Keep that interesting. Surprise them. Surprise myself. Yeah, Andrew and I uh, talk about this a lot when we're working together, and and I think we've in our shorthand we refer to it as as you know the urgency of the script, and that doesn't necessarily mean you know fast pacing. It just means 
taking the character down a road where you really want to know what's going to happen to them and and what's going to happen next on their journey. Um, but so I heard a rumor that you almost <laughs> sold, <laughs> that you almost sold a script to Spielberg. Uh, I I want to hear that story if you can tell us about that. Absolutely. The interesting thing about screenwriting is there are probably 10 different points of success. The first is, hey, you've written a script. Great. The second one is people have responded well to it. The third is, hey, you may have won a contest or somebody asks to read a second one because they like this one so much. And you sort of notch these on your belt as you become a screenwriter. Of course, the big ones are, you know, can you sell a script? I've optioned a few scripts. Uh, but they have not been made into movies. And then that would be like seven is or eight is sell a script. Nine is it gets made into a movie and 10 is you sell another script. You know, it kind of starts all over again. Even Academy Award winners have to go out there and pitch and sell that next script. Right. Uh, they probably have an easier time. People come asking for it, but still it's, it's one at a time generally. So for me, I've gotten close a number of times. And early in my career, I was, um, it was, it was kind of funny. I wrote a script called Incurable about a man who chooses to become a vampire because he has developed ALS. And it's, oh, that's a fate worse than death. And then he meets this woman uh, and he becomes friends with her. And there's a little bit of an attraction too. And he discovers that she's a vampire and she discovers that he's got ALS. And then she decides to offer to help him to, yes, technically kill him, but it is a rebirth of this new him with a better body without these health issues. And he can then live as a functioning, vibrant person forever if he wants. Um, and I thought that was interesting as a concept. I thought of it because my brother, my twin brother, who I mentioned earlier, he died of AIDS back in the 90s when there were no cures for it and not really much of a medical cocktail. So it was a death sentence. And just watching him die, knowing that he couldn't do anything about it, reminded me of ALS and some of the other terrible uh, diseases out there, you know, when you get cancer in your pancreas and things like that. So I thought, well, that would be interesting as a story. Like, how do you deal with something that is a death sentence? Then I got sort of the thought of living as a better you, which is always what happens when people become vampires, but they never choose to become vampires in movies. They're always sort of swayed by some romantic, dizzy, mystic you know, seduction. Uh, I mean, even Gary Oldman couldn't just come out to Winona Ryder's character and say, hey, I love you. <laughs> Instead, he's like, no, I'm sort of drugging your mind. And I don't know who you think I am, but I'm this half vision, half fantasy. Um so he chooses to become a vampire. Anyway, it it got very close to being produced a few times, and uh, it was going to be made by a studio, and that all fell apart. And at that point, I was a little discouraged because this is my first script, and it kind of was happening soon. And I thought, well, I'm not sure what to do with the next one. And a friend of mine worked at CAA. In fact, I had helped her get into CAA. She used to work with me in advertising. And I said, is there anything you can do? I know that CEA doesn't really let newbies in, but can you do anything? And she was very wonderful. Uh, her name was Lori Tab, And she said, well, I'll tell you what, give me a script you've written and I'll put it in the reader's room. And if they like it, then I'll call you and see if there's anything we can do about it. Because at least we would have that to say, hey, the reader's room here at CEA, which is very esteemed, liked your script a lot. And maybe there's something we can do. Well, I gave them 
my second script, which is called The Confession of Lizzie Borden. I had a theory on how Lizzie did it and why she did it and how it all came about that I had not seen before when I was doing all this research on this very interesting true crime story. And so I wrote this kind of two-hander where somebody thinks he knows how he did it, sort of my point of view as the writer, and sort of challenges her on it years after when she's been exonerated and living as a rich woman. Well, it's a very clever, if I dare say so myself, two-hander, kind of a cat and mouse game. Well, the reader's room loved it, and they were going to do it. And so one day, Lori calls me, and she goes, I have a agent on the line who wants to talk to you about it. And she said, oh, my God, I love The Confession of Lizzie Borden. It's my favorite script I've read all year long. It's like, wow, that's very, very kind of you to say. And she goes, in fact, I like it so much. I want my number one client to direct it. And his name is Steven Spielberg. Now, Spielberg has three <laughs> agents. She was one of them. But she took it to him the next day and said, you know, there's this this writer who came new to us. And I read this. And the Reader's Room read it. And they loved it. They recommended every agent read it. And I want you to produce and direct it. So he talked with her at lunch, I guess, for about an hour about it and said he would read it. And he did. But at the time, and this is, you know, again, I wasn't fully convinced that Steven Spielberg was going to do it. But, you know, he's very busy and he's got his hands in a lot of pots and doing different things. And at the time, he said, you know, this is a, a clever script, but it's kind of different for me. And frankly, it's a little small. You know, like at this point, he was doing things that were big productions and probably never less than $150 million. I mean, my God, he does the comedy, catch me if you can. And I'll bet you that thing caused a hundred million dollars, sure, sure. but it was a period piece and he had big stars in it, et cetera, et cetera. So he passed on it. And then it just kind of drifts away as things do where, you know, this agent had other clients to take care of and different things like that. But she got in his hands. He liked it. And for about a couple months time, it looked like there was maybe some movement on her, at least talk of movement, but ultimately it, uh, it kind of just died on the vine and uh, they sort of went back to their normal world of representing uh, established writers and talents who already had a track record. And uh, I've done some stuff for a couple of producers for Netflix that uh, they're still trying to develop a couple of the scripts I wrote for them, as well as some other production companies here and there. But it's it's funny that eight, nine, and 10, as I said originally, is the toughest part of the screenwriting thing. I've done all the other things up until then, you know, won contests, written a dozen scripts, different kinds of genres, come very close, been optioned for it, worked with different producers and, and such on it. But it really is a big thing to get that money. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Player, but at the end, Tim sure. Robbins as the movie exec is saying how tough his job is because he said, you know, I read hundreds of scripts and we really only do about six or seven a year. And, you know, picking those, you got to be the right ones and this, that, and the other thing. That's kind of true. You know, there's so many people who have written scripts and they get their foot in the door and they're established writers. They have certain reputations or certain calling cards and, and they've been around and stuff, but getting it produced is, is it's, that's, that's the big, that number eight is really the big one. <laughs> getting from eight to nine, you know, will they buy it and make it? Uh, <laughs> and that, that so far has evaded me, but Mr. Spielberg gave me hope for a few months. So I'm assuming you get this question a lot, but I want to kind of put a spin on it, which is, sure. you know, what's your favorite movie? And uh, but the spin is like, what's your favorite movie that you think most of the general audiences, maybe even film critics got wrong that you think was poorly received, but actually is a great movie for me. You know, I love The Secret Life of Walter Mitty with Ben Stiller, even though oh, sure. many people hate it. Um, and I'm curious, you know, if you have a list, if one comes to mind for you. 
Well, that's a great question too. You guys have ask excellent questions. Good luck. You have a <laughs> very good podcast going. I dare say, happy to come back if you ever want me. But uh, this is great. Um, I will say my favorite movie of all time is Jaws, which is so funny that I was just talking about Spielberg because every time I see that, I see something new. And uh, you know, now that I've probably seen it twenty times, I'm starting to notice how all that local flavor is in there because. Spielberg cast all these local people in the smaller roles, and it really gives it this small town vibe and sound and feeling. And like you're really there with all these people, and and, and it's you know the townspeople are kind of their own Greek chorus in a way. Um, as far as a movie that uh, I've had to sort of defend or uh, think is great that it took a while for people to come around to, uh, I will return to the horror genre. And I will tell you that one of my favorite movie experiences in my lifetime was when I was in college and I saw John Carpenter's remake of the thing. Ah, great picture. Fantastic. To me, the dynamic of these men and they're in isolation and they don't know what they're dealing with and they don't have anywhere to go. And they're not soldiers, they're scientists and they're kind of lazy and gotten used to sort of sitting there and gaining weight and growing their beards out and probably not bathing. <laughs> and then along comes this superior being that is just trying to reproduce. You know, it's kind of an innocent one in a way, even though it's killing dogs and doing terrible things, but it's just trying to further itself in this planet. Uh, and they don't know what to do with it. And yet the critics at that time crucified that film because it was considered to be too gross. All those special effects were truly disgusting and terrifying and <laughs> gory and, you know, goo and <laughs> sputtering vertebrae and, and, you know, heads on top of long, weird sort of spider-like creatures and poor dogs quaking in the corner. And then Richard Dysart gets his arms cut off as he's... <laughs> you know, in surgery and they hated it. And I kept saying, no, 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 you have to look beyond the gore. This is a great movie. It's a thriller. It's look at the cast. I mean, these are all like New York theater actors, David Clennon and, um, you know, some of those kinds of actors who, you know, came from, from the theater, uh, that had a reputation and really well done. I mean, Keith David at that point was a New York theater actor and, and uh, so many of the others. And Kurt Russell becomes kind of this villain, right? I mean, he's the hero and the villain in it. He kills Richard Master, another great uh, character actor, uh, in cold blood because he thinks he's the guy and he's not. And yet he's, you know, handing out justice and he sees fit as kind of this rogue sheriff. And everybody couldn't stand the movie and it bombed and it hurt John Carpenter's career and all that. But since then... Basically, the movie community and critical community has determined that that film is one of the 10 greatest horror movies of all time. It's one of those ones that, yeah, when I was in my early 20s, I was there before you guys were. Uh, and today it's as, as marvelous, if not more so, because of all those things I just described. I'm also a big fan of John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, and I don't think the critics loved that movie either, if I remember correctly. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, John Carpenter, I think, is one of those interesting auteurs who, unfortunately, has gotten a lot of bad press from people. And I, I'm not sure why. I think maybe he got too hot too early or, you know, he started putting his name on stuff like John Carpenter's The Fog. You know, if it was just The Fog, it would probably been okay, but it was John Carpenter's <laughs> The Fog. So maybe they had a thing against him or whatever, wanted to bring him down a peg. Very British of the critical community. Like, oh, I dare say they've gotten too big for the britches. Let's bring them down a couple of notches, shall we? Oh, yes. Good show. No, it's not a good show. Me writing about it, that's the good show. Uh, but um, I, I don't know why he 
he's sort of been reviled and sort of treated so shabbily. I think he should get an honorary Oscar for sort of changing the face of horror in some ways with the indie thriller that was Halloween, probably the most imitated film of the last 30, 40 years. And uh, he's done a lot of terrific work and he doesn't seem to catch a break. So, but I think a lot of times it's the genre too. I think horror has trouble sometimes breaking through. Now we're getting used to it, but look at Tony Collette. She gave the best performance a few years ago of anybody in a movie that year for Hereditary and they wouldn't nominate her for, even though she's Emmy and, uh, you know, awarded uh, Tony Collette, who's a critic's darling, but not in that genre. So I think it might have to do with the fact that people think horror is a little beneath them. Well, while we're on uh, favorite movies, um, you know, when I'm bored and I just have nothing to watch and I, I want to <laughs> put something in, I always throw in like either Point Break or Crazy Stupid <laughs> Love. Uh-huh. You know, those are kind of my guilty pleasure movies. Do you sure. have a, a guilty pleasure movie that you just sort of your go to and you just want to sit down and just kick back? Well, I'll tell you two. <laughs> One is a little more esteemed uh, and the other is utter shit. Uh, <laughs> the esteemed one, and I recommend this often to people, like, uh, you know, we've watched so many crime stories in CSI and everything is procedural. And yet I was asked the other day, what is your favorite mystery you've ever seen? I said, well, I could say, you know, like Agatha Christie's, uh, the versions of some of her work, like Murder on the Orient Express in 74 was very well done and Parallax View and, and a whole bunch of movies taking in Pelham 1, 2, 3. I mean, you can pick so many great thrillers and, and mysteries sort of from the 70s. But one that I picked from the 70s, which is incredible, I don't know if you've ever heard of it or seen it, but it's called The Last of Sheila. It came out oh, in yeah. 1973. I, I got that on DVD. Oh, oh yeah. It's Actually, so good. I loaned it. I, okay, I got to do a shout out. I loaned oh. it to my buddy, Alvaro Rodriguez. <laughs> And I don't oh, think I love got it back. <laughs> but well, uh, you tell him to bring it back to you because yeah. you need to see that. It's so that's good. That's a great movie. It is, and it's so clever. And of course, it's written by Stevenson. I'm in Tony Perkins, who you know know enough about the craft and show business to not only you know pimp that world, but also were big mystery fans. They used to have like mystery parties where they'd assign victims and killer and all you know the the bystanders and do their own sort of version of Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes for a party. So they wrote this. I, I think it's very clever. Again, that one was not pre- appreciated in its time. The critics at that point thought it was too intellectual. It was too hard to figure out. Now you watch it and after Knives Out and all the episodes of Columbo and everything else we've seen since then, I think it's more accessible. But that one I, I think is a great movie and yet um, and I watched that a lot. I will return again and again. Uh, at the end, you just have to watch the last 20 minutes, if nothing else, for James Mason tour de force as he explains everything in his very James Mason manner. Uh, uh, but here's the <laughs> shitty a, movie. That was a good impression. Well, thank you. There's he, he's <laughs> The best line in it, I'm going to tell everybody to look it up because it's a great line. At one point, he goes like, uh, come, come, Tom, where's that puzzle mind of yours? Little child molester, little child molester. What, uh, as opposed to what, big child molester? <laughs> What's the L doing there? Uh, and then he realized that it's needed for a code. But anyway, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, and here's the shitty movie that I I can't look away when it turns on, and you're going to love it because it's a Patrick Swayze movie. It's called Roadhouse. It oh, is yeah. utter garbage, but it is eminently watchable garbage and (laughs) what i still can't decipher to this day i can understand the drive-in sort of macho guy appeal of that all these fight scenes and everybody's out matching each other pain don't hurt and sam elliott's walking around and everybody's punching (laughs) each other and you know one point you know swayze pulls the i think the throat out of the guy he's kung fuing into oblivion (laughs) 
But the thing I still don't understand watching it, other than for the paycheck, is what on God's green earth is Ben Gazzara doing in that movie? And he's a really formidable villain in it. He's the guy who runs the town. But it's like Ben Gazzara, who's usually this very subtle actor, whether it's in QB7 on TV or Anatomy of a Murder. Or, you know, he got an Emmy nomination for being uh, Aiden uh, Quinn's uh, uh, father in an early frost. He's a great actor. He's, you know, did theater and all kinds of wonderful television and movies over the years. And he's hamming it up so much. And there's this glint in his eye, like, you know, they're paying me half a million dollars for this and it's crap, but I'm going to have fun and, you know, just play to the rafters. So for me, that, and as well as all of the rest of that, it's so over the top is a pretty good watch, even though it's crap. So as a film critic, your job is to critique other people's work. But at the same time, I'm sure people are critiquing your work as well, whether it be other film critics or readers or viewers. And I'm curious how you handle criticism from the readers or viewers who may disagree with your assessment of a particular film. How do you engage with the different perspectives while staying true to your own opinions? And if there's ever been a time you flipped on a movie that you maybe originally didn't like, but now you do because of those different perspectives. Oh, that's very good. Um, yeah, occasionally I have gotten some people online coming for me because I didn't like a certain movie as well. I'll give you a recent example of that. Usually my uh, critical brother and I have aren't really like that. It's very rare that I like something that's truly awful and am sort of the cheese standing alone on that. But I will say when I first saw Everything Everywhere All at Once, I thought it was a little bit too long and too much. It was everything everywhere all at once, just too much of it. <laughs> and so I said, well, I liked... Uh, the performances and a lot of the energy and, uh, you know, it was funny and crazy and weird and you didn't know where it was going. I still think it went on about 20 minutes too long. And I think uh, some of the, like the, 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 you know, the butt plugs and dildos or whatever fighting with those seemed a little bit sophomoric. I don't think it needed a quite be that low hanging fruit. And I do mean low hanging, uh, <laughs> but um, I didn't like that movie enough to give it uh, a recommendation on Rotten Tomatoes. I gave it two and a half stars and I just kind of teetered. And I said, well, I found too much to criticize with it. I'm going to give it two and a half stars. I had people coming after me. One guy wrote me on Twitter said, how does it feel to be the only critic in the whole planet who didn't like that movie? Oh, wow. So I wrote him back very respectfully without, you know, engaging him or trolling him and just said, Actually, I'm not alone, and here's four others. And they happen to be pretty big uh, critics, like one guy from the LA Times, another guy from the New York Times. So I was not sort of alone in that. But occasionally I like a movie that I've had to defend with a, a few people. Last year, I really liked Marilyn, uh, the, the Marilyn Monroe movie Blonde. And a lot oh, of people okay. hated that one. So occasionally... I had to sort of defend that amongst my friends and stuff. But I said, look, it's based on uh, the book and uh, Oates wrote it in very much the same style. It's not exactly her story, though. It's sort of a, a, a mood piece in her mind. I think it's more of a fever dream, almost kind of it reminded me a lot of sort of the story of Betty in Mulholland Drive in its way. I don't know if that influenced oh, interesting. The, the director, but I think there was a lot of that sort of female victimization and self sort of uh, aggrandization as well and, and sort of uh, going on with and, and interestingly enough, too, of course, both films about Hollywood and actresses and the disposability of them. But um, that was one that I had to defend a little bit because a couple of critics were like, really, you like that? And it's like, yeah, I did. And I'm so glad that 
Anna de Armas uh, got a nomination for it, even though the film was ignored except for that, because I think a lot of people recognized what I did too. And that is it's a great performance. It was very courageous. She really made me feel terrible for Marilyn. And while it was depressing and kind of a horror movie, again, go back to horror. Um, it was, I thought a very good and uh, worthy adaptation of the source material and a different way to look at what was going on in her world, because it was sort of from her point of view and what was going on in her own head and the way she saw things. Well, Jeff, this has been a lot of fun chatting with you about uh, your screenplay ideas and your meetings with Spielberg and and your, <laughs> uh, your, your film criticism. It's been great fun. And I have to give a shout out to our producer, Melody Lopez, for setting this up. You've been a great guest. So tell everyone where they can find you. Well, thank you. I'd be happy to. Um, you can read me at theestablishingshot.org. That is my movie and TV review site. It's mostly movies, uh, but it's also interesting because if I really like a movie, I will oftentimes uh, represent my enthusiasm for it by doing a sort of a laudatory caricature of uh, the, the 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 film or TV show. And I, I try to capture the essence of the people, and it's always a little something extra that I think gives it something special as it were. Um, uh, you can also read me every two weeks in pipelineartists.com. That's an online magazine about artistry and writing and creating, uh, usually with a, a, a sort of a slant towards the screenwriter. And I do essays on film there or uh, thoughts about screenwriting and, and writing better scripts and stuff uh, and caricatures accompany those articles as well. Uh, you can also find me on Rotten Tomatoes. Just look me up as uh, Jeff York under the critics list. And occasionally I will show up as guests on podcasts. I've been a regular guest for the last four or five months on kicking the seat. It's on YouTube and it usually uh, is a discussion with various critics on camera each week on YouTube and then various places here and there. But uh, if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff York, uh, writer there uh, you can find out sort of what i'm up to because all things get posted there for you to hopefully find and maybe link to to be amused <laughs> well we sure appreciate your time and and uh, we'll have you back on the show again real soon excellent i will look forward to it thank you right you take care thank you for listening to the filmmaker mixer podcast a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers jeff stolen and andrew lamping and produced by melody lopez our theme song was composed by cryptozoologist stephen d bennett make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes